a famous story that uh, you may have heard before. It's a cute story about the the rabbi who is visiting in the religious school and walks around, and um, these bunch of little kids are they're all you know doing an art project, and the rabbi walks up to a little girl and he goes, you know, what are you what are you doing? And she looks up and says, I'm I'm drawing a picture of God. And the rabbi, being that kind of a rabbi, says, but nobody knows what God looks like. And of course, the little girl looks up and responds, wait till I finish my picture. So that's kind of what this is all about. Because, um, what do I mean, 70 names of God? Did you all get it? Actually, I sent you, I think Rebecca sent, the fabulous Rebecca, who was responsible for everything under the sun, uh, sent you this printout that I did of one version of the 70 names of God. Where does 70 come from? 70 comes from this conversation in the Talmud, which I didn't put in here, but which, the, as most of you know, if I were to ask you, what's the number one most um, important single short prayer in all of the Torah, in all of Jewish life? I don't know. What would you guess? Shema. Shema. Perfect. Exactly. It's the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And Shema, the rabbi said, represents the 70 names of God. How? Because every Hebrew letter has a number equivalent. Aleph is one, Bet is two, Gimel is three, Dalit is four. And the name, the word Shema, which of course means listen and pay attention, Shema Yisrael, is made up of three Hebrew letters, Shin, Mem, Ayin. And Shin and Mem together make the word Shem, which means name. And Ayin is the Hebrew letter that is the equivalent number of 70. So the rabbi said, ah, hidden in, this is what the Jewish mystical rabbis said, hidden in the very words of the Shema itself is this hint that there are 70 names for God. It's Shem Ayin, 70 names for God. And then they went about, as rabbis tend to do, then um, this is what we call spiritual confirmation bias. They then went about finding 70 names for God. So as you'll see in the list, if you happen to glance at it, they put all kinds of things together to say these are the names of God. So um, let me... Uh, Many of you go to Torah study, and when you go to Torah study, inevitably, it begins with a blessing, right? Well, this is kind of Torah study. We'll begin with a blessing, because it'll take us exactly where we need to go. And the blessing traditionally is, Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotah V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah, which literally means, Baruch Ata Adonai, blessed are you, O Lord, or God, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, our God, Melech HaOlam, which is, you know how many names of God there are in here? You can start counting. Melech HaOlam means ruler of the universe, or used to be king of the universe. Asher Kidshan Mitzvotav, who's made us holy with your mitzvot, Vitzivanu, and commanded us, La'asok B'divrei Torah, to occupy ourselves with words of Torah. Now, if you are Jewish, or if you hang out with Jews at all, and if you ever go to services anywhere, and if you ever read any prayer book, 
including the Reconstructions Prayer Book, you know that Jewish life is filled with Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlams, and then all kinds of things that follow that. There's a short version, there's a long version. The short version is Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam something, Borei Pri HaGafen, Hamotzi Lechamin HaOrts, or whatever. The long version is the one I just did. Asher Kitshanu Misvotav Itzivanu, something. Either way, every single time we say that blessing, which is in Jewish life all the time, in fact, the rabbis of the Talmud have said this many times before, command us we're supposed to say a hundred blessings a day. A hundred times we're supposed to find something to say Baruch about. But most of the people I know don't necessarily believe that God is a king. Because why do we call God Melech HaOlam, king of the universe? Well, it's a metaphor. Because in the era, obviously, in which this phrase emerged, the head of the country was a king. So if you're going to, and God is called Melech HaMlachim, the king of kings. If you're going to say God is the ultimate ruler of the universe, then you're going to pick whatever name it is. Today, we I don't know, what president or something? President God. We, we would pick whatever is the most important person in the country, typically a king, and we would say, well, that's what God is. God is the king of kings. And in this case, Melech HaOlam means the king of the whole universe. I mean, you can't get better than that. The ruler of everything has got to be what God is. However, how, how do we say that? Speaking of names of God, how do I say that if in my own theology, which is my own theology, I don't think of God as a being sitting somewhere on a throne, even though, of course, not too long ago we had high holidays, and that's the, the whole image of the high holidays, is God sitting on a throne. God the judge sitting on a throne, in fact, judging us. We pass before God while God's sitting on God's throne, and God is going, you know, yes, no, yes, no, you know, repent, do this, do that, and we pray that God will get off of the throne of absolute justice and move to the throne of mercy. That's the imagery, that's the liturgical prayer imagery that we experience every high holidays. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, those 10 days of awe, it's God as this judge, the ultimate judge. In fact, last week's in the Torah portion, last week's Torah portion was that fabulous story of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm sure you all remember that story. And what makes that story powerful is God's conversation with Abraham, right? And if you know the story, you know God says, thinks about it in the Torah, and says, you know, I guess I better tell Abraham what I'm about to do, which is really an interesting conversation, an interesting reflection of how those who wrote, whoever wrote the Torah, thought about God. Rather than just do, God said, I think I better tell Abraham. And so God tells Abraham, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they're filled with wickedness. And as you know, if you know the story, which most people do, Abraham goes, wait a minute. What if there's some righteous people? What if not everybody is wicked? What if there's some people that are good in there? You're going to destroy the whole city, and therefore you're going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And there's this famous phrase that Abraham then says to God, challenging God. Abraham says, Hashofet kol lo which means, shouldn't the judge of all the earth also act justly? Is it just to wipe away the righteous with the wicked? And God goes, 
Well, and Abraham jumps in and says, okay, so if there's 50 righteous people, will you spare the whole city on their behalf? And God goes, okay, yes. And once God says yes, if you know the story, then Abraham starts bargaining. Well, if there's 40, will you save the city? Yes. If there's 30, will you save the city? God says yes. If there's 20, will you save the city? Yes. Uh, Abraham says, if there's 10, will you save the city? And God says yes, and that's the end of the conversation. If there's 10 righteous people, I won't wipe, wipe out the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah, both cities. And then, of course, according to the story, they couldn't even find 10. But the point of the story isn't that they couldn't find 10. The point of the story, what makes the story powerful in context of, I'm going to talk about 70 names of God, the point of the story is that Abraham stood up and challenged God, not on behalf of what you would expect, protect my family, protect my children, or protect my wife, protect my extended family, or protect my people, or my city, or my country, Abraham argues with God on behalf of total strangers. That's the power of this story, really, in, in the Torah. And why it's there, in fact, is because Abraham is supposed to be a model. When we meet Abraham last week, and when Abraham starts in the Torah, the father of the Jewish people. But more than that, actually, I figured I might as well tell you this. I don't know if you've thought about it before. Abraham is undoubtedly the single most influential human being ever to live. Why do I say that? Because, not because of Jews, although we have made some contributions, but just think about it. How many billions of people are there in the world? Somewhere between seven plus billion people, something like that. And Christianity traces itself to Abraham, and Islam traces itself to Abraham, along with Jews. And even though we only have, what, 15 million Jews or so in the world, we have billions combined of Christians and Jews, more than half of the world. So because of that, I boldly say that the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, clearly has been the single most influential human being in all of history. And when we meet Abraham, God tells us in the Torah, I'll tell you which God in a minute, because that's related to the names of God. God says, You're, why, why, why Abraham? Abraham is supposed to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. That's how we meet Abraham. God says, you're going to be a blessing. I'm going to promise you, your children, your descendants will be a blessing. To all of the families of the earth. And so Abraham then becomes a model for us. And in this portion that I just shared, that story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's the model. The model is that the God that we are trying to understand, the God whose name we want to find, is a God who is willing to engage with human beings. That's the Torah version of God. Now, I haven't talked about any of the names yet, but if you have the the text that I shared with you, the first text that I put on here was that famous encounter of Moses at the burning bush. I have the ark lit because, in case you didn't notice, our ark is in the shape of a burning bush. So that, that's how we designed it, and it's revelation emerging from the burning bush. So, Moses is there at the burning bush with God, and you can read. I'll read it out loud, but you can read yourself this famous encounter. First we have the Abraham encounter. Now we have Moses' encounter. Moses says, because God had just told Moses, 
I pick tag you're it. Go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Tell the people I've sent you. Moses goes, says to God, when I come to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What is God's name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, famously, Eyeh Asher Eyeh. That's the name of God. I won't translate it yet. Continuing, thus shall you say to the Israelites, and then he shortens it to Eyeh. Eyeh sent me to you. And what's so interesting about this passage is, in the Hebrew, and God, with the Hebrew name Elohim, said further to Moses, thus shall you speak to the Israelites, Adonai, we've now said one, four names of God in this one passage. The first name of God is Eyeh Asher Eyeh. The second name of God is Eyeh. The third name of God is Elohim. And now God says, you should go tell them Adonai, not Elohim, but yud heh vav Adonai, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This, this shall be my name forever. This my appellation for all eternity. The reason I brought this is because we have been, all these books are all about trying to find God's name. Here's one called Finding God. Ten Jewish Responses. Here's one called God is a Verb. Here's one called Why God Won't Go Away. This is written by neuroscientists, brain scientists, who talk about what it is in our brain that forces us to think about God. It's really a fascinating book, by the way, Why God Won't Go Away. Two doctors and PhDs, both of them. Here's famous Karen Armstrong's A History of God. Here's a world treasure of prayer. Every eye beholds you, and the you is obviously God. Here's a book called God Was in This Place and I Didn't Know It. This whole book based on that one passage from the Torah in which Jacob sleeps out in the wilderness running away from his brother, puts a rock under his head, has a dream, and God's in the dream, and he wakes up and he says this word, this phrase, God was in this place and I didn't know it. And this whole book and much of the rabbinic commentaries about that wrestle with how do we know when we encounter God? How do we know what God's name is? How do we know when we hear God's name? And, of course, Deepak Chopra also wrote a book, How to Know God. And there's tons more, obviously. Why? Because built into the human spirit is this sense of Searching for God. Let me just read this to you. I'm going to get back to the names exactly. Here's a prayer. Listen to this prayer. In the beginning was God. Today is God. Tomorrow will be God. Who can make an image of God? He has no body. He is a word which comes out of your mouth. That word, it's no more. It's past and it still lives. So is God. Where did this prayer come from? The pygmies of the Congo recite this prayer as a type of creed that describes God as an eternal spirit. From the pygmies of the Congo. And the reason I bring that is to show you how fundamental is this search for God that's built into the human being. Oh, by the way, I'm sure you all know, why did I bring a dollar bill? Because God is on every... Denomination, right? In bold letters it says, in God we trust, on every piece of 
money that we have. By the way, you know when that started, where that came from? The first version of In God We Trust started in 1864. Because of the Civil War at the time, April 22nd, as a matter of fact, and I had a note, 1864, they were, after all of the trauma, what was going on in the Civil War, they decided they wanted to try to inject some spirituality even into our money. And so the first coins were printed in 1864 with In God We Trust. The, however, this that says In God We Trust on every dollar and five dollar and all the dollar bills came from 1956. In the midst of the Cold War between us, us and the Soviet Union, when there was all this fear of communism, the godless communists and our Congress, which used to work together, our Congress wanted to figure out a way of symbolizing how different we were from the godless communists. So in 1956, to distinguish us from the Soviet Union, Congress declared that in God we trust is the national motto of the United States. 1956. By the way, that's the same time that they added one nation under God to the Pledge of Allegiance for exactly the same reason. But here it is. It's fundamental to the human search for meaning and purpose in life to figure out, well, who's God? What's God? What do we call God? How do we call God's name? We all know uh, that the very first thing that happens in the Torah, I would have taken the Torah scroll out, but... That's the point here. The very first thing that happens in the Torah is Bereshit Elohim et In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody knows that. Well, what's the name for God here? It's Elohim. One of the names for God. The first one I have, it's number one, as a matter of fact. When God, Elohim, began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void, darkness on the face of the earth, Deep and the wind from Elohim, God, sweeping over the water, God, meaning Elohim here, said, let there be light, and there was light. Elohim becomes the first, our first encounter with God's name is Elohim, which has always been fascinating because in Hebrew, Elohim is a plural. Anything that ends im, yud, mem, is plural. How can God's name be plural when we are celebrated as the monotheists of history? But Elohim, the very first name we have of God, is literally a plural. It's a plural of El, which will show up later in my list, which is sort of a generic word for God that takes place all over the Middle East, Elohim. Not because we think there are many gods, but because we think that our ancestors thought that Elohim was the God of creation. That's the name they took put to God, the God of creation. I love this Mordecai Kaplan quote that I put, that you can all read, that the Chinese claim of white jade alone, there are a hundred colors. Why then may there not be at least a hundred ways of believing in God? Kaplan understood that wrestling with God and trying to figure out what we mean by God is fundamental to the human mind and the human soul. And in one of these sessions, I'm going to share many of Kaplan's ideas about God because those names of God are so interesting. Then there's this quote from Gershom Sholem who wrote about Jewish mysticism. I'm just going to share these with you because at one time we're going to talk about the Jewish mystics understanding God, which is actually number 70 on your list. 
There's this 45 or two letter name of God. In the last resort, the whole of Torah for the author of the Zohar, which is the book of Jewish mysticism, is nothing but one great and holy name of God. They, mystics, thought that all of the letters in the Torah, all the hundreds of thousands of the letters in the Torah, were literally one gigantic name of God. Because everybody they recognize is in this search for the sacred. And here's, since I brought up Elohim, I put this text from the Midrash, Exodus Rabbah. The Holy One said to those, you want to know my name? I'm called according to my actions. And that's what you'll see in these 70 names. When I judge the creatures, I'm Elohim. And when I have mercy with my world, I am named Adonai. That's yud Hey vav Hey. And so what we find is that in the rabbinic writings, the way the rabbis of Jewish history understood God was that the names of God are a reflection of the qualities that we wanted to imitate. Because ultimately, what is the mitzvah of human life is imitatio dea, to imitate God, to find ways, just as God is created, is creative, we're supposed to be creative. Just as God is compassion, we're supposed to be compassionate. So what I want you to do for a moment is I want you to think about if you have a favorite name of God, that is, if you're going to call God, of course in English it's just G-O-D, that's it. But when you think about God, if you are, and you can write it in the chat because I can see if you write in the chat, I believe. Um, you're going to say, what's your favorite quality that you would associate with God? I want to know what you would say. What's your favorite quality? Mercy, loving, compassionate, wisdom, allowing, oh, like the God of permission, merciful, close, hmm, intimate, sense of intimacy, of personal God, listening, the God who hears prayer, Hashomea Tefillah. That version is in here too. The Kol Mama Daka, the still small voice, which is God as well. What's interesting is God provides hope. Think of the Ten Commandments, how the Ten Commandments begin. The Ten Commandments begin with God saying, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's how you know me. You know me, my name is Liberator. My name is Redemption. Eternal. Provides hope. Good. So what you'll see as we go through names is that human beings in their search for holiness and through their search for a connection with God looked to the qualities that they thought were the highest and noblest and best and deepest that they wanted to discover in the sacredness of the universe, of the world itself, and they ascribed those to God, and they called those as God's name. I'm going to read you a story for a second also that I love that my sister sent me. My sister Carolyn. I have three, but my sister Carolyn. This is a story about Desmond Tutu. Asked by the BBC to identify the defining moment in his life, Desmond Tutu spoke of the day he and his mother were walking down the street. Tutu was nine years old. A tall white man dressed in a black suit came toward them. In the days of apartheid in South Africa, when a black person and a white person met while walking on a footpath, the black person was expected to step into the gutter to allow the white person to pass and nod their head 
as a gesture of respect. But this day, before a young Tutu and his mother could step off the sidewalk, the white man stepped off the sidewalk, and as they passed, he tipped his hat, have a kippah, tipped his kippah, his hat, in a gesture of respect to her. The white man was Trevor Huddleston, an Anglican priest who was bitterly opposed to apartheid. It changed Tutu's life. When his mother told him that Trevor Huddleston had stepped off the sidewalk because he was, quote, a man of God, Tutu found his calling. When she told me that he was an Anglican priest, I decided there and then that I wanted to be an Anglican priest too. And what is more, Tutu said, I wanted to be a man of God. How do we know God? We don't know God by God's names, even though we're going to spend some time talking about names. We don't know God by God's names. We know God according to our tradition in this way that Desmond Tutu said. We know God by what happens in the world. Uh, Those of you who've logged on when I or Didi and I have led Friday night services will probably remember that um, early in the service, one of the prayers is a prayer about the heavens and God is the power that uh, sets the stars in their heavenly courses and the night follows the day. It's Hama'ariv uh, Aravim prayer. And I often say, this is one of my favorite prayers. And when I say this is one of my favorite prayers, I say it because, I always also add, because it's so concrete. Because our ancestors were wise enough to recognize they looked around the world itself, their everyday experience of the world itself, and in the world itself they discovered holiness. That when when they taught we should say a hundred prayers a day, what they really meant was we should be conscious of gratitude a hundred times a day. We should say, because as many of you know, the Talmud, the rabbis also said, in the end of days when the Messiah comes and we no longer have to need prayer books and everything else, the one prayer that will remain is prayers of gratitude. Every other prayer can be put aside, but prayers of gratitude are still going to be required because no matter what, even if the messianic days come, we are obligated to experience a sense of gratitude for our lives, for the world, for what we have been given, and to see God as the source of our gratitude. So when we experience the holy of the everyday, we wake up, we say, thank you, God, I woke up. We wake up. doesn't matter what the specific name of God might be, what how we call God in that moment. No matter what name we apply, we are acknowledging the miracle of our life itself. You know, and you know, I've said this many times. You wake up in the morning, you say, thank you, God, I woke up. Then you say a prayer about your body, because there's nothing more miraculous than that I'm standing and that I can do this. And I don't know how I can do this, but I can pick up this piece of paper. And any of you, I know Tom Elias is on, just had a bypass surgery, um, had an organ transplant. Tom, you're like the walking miracle of uh, KI. But... You know, you certainly appreciate, when you go through serious surgery, you certainly appreciate the miracle of your body and the resiliency of your body, that when you cut yourself, you know you're going to heal, and you don't even know how you heal. You don't have to actually direct 
all those white corpuscles and everything in there to heal, you know you just heal. We are self-healing organisms in so many ways. That miracle, there's nothing more miraculous than that. And so our ancestors said, that's where you find God, right here. It's why in the Torah, God says to Moses, tell the people, you don't have to go across the ocean to find me. You don't have to go up to the top of the mountain to find me. You don't have to go into a deep cave to find me. You don't even have to meditate to find me because I'm as close as your mouth and the words that come out. I'm as close as your heart. I'm as close as your breathing, it says in the Torah. And so the name of God, then those names are my breathing, my beating heart. The name of God is the miracle of my body. The name of God is all those things you put in the chat that provide hope and eternal and compassion and justice and caring and listening. Those qualities become literally the names of God, which is why our ancestors said there are at least 70 of them. There isn't a name that one that could possibly capture that which is unexpressible. You know, the mystics, when we talk about mystics, say, I'm glad you got in at least, the mystics say, we call God the Ein Sof. Ein Sof means endlessness, never ending. That's the mystical name for God, Ein Sof. Well, one of them, there's many, but Ein Sof. Because there is no way to hold something that is beyond description, right? Um, You all know, I just did a wedding yesterday, a brand new couple who just joined KI, did their wedding, and at the end of the wedding, as we do, all of us rabbis and cantors, at the end of every wedding, we put our hands on them, well, actually, I just held them around them, didn't actually put them, I wrapped them in a talit, and I said the traditional priestly blessing that's contained in the Torah, that you've all heard a million times. Say the baby name, you say the bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and weddings. It's Yivarecha Adonai, Vishmarecha Adonai, in that case, is one of the names of God, one of the most popular. It's God's intimate name that God says to Moses, this is my name. May God bless you and keep you. We say this blessing in the Torah, in the book of Numbers, at the end of that, this is God telling Aaron, the high priest, use these words. This is what God says. After God says, say these, this threefold blessing, and they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. When you say these words of blessing, when you bless someone, God says in the Torah, in the book of Numbers, therefore my name will be placed on them, and therefore they'll be blessed. It's like Actually, I'm wearing a little pin. You can't probably tell what it is because I'm so far away. But it's a little dove. This dove pin was given to me by Harold Shapiro, blessed memory, one of our wonderful members of our extended congregational family. Uh, lived in New York, but his uh, daughter Karen and son-in-law Sayud and grandchildren grew up here. And they, Harold and Myri would come every year to high holidays. And Harold was a big, passionate builder of peace in Israel, worked with Israelis and Palestinians for decades uh, trying to bring peace, and he gave me this. And so I wear this in his, often in his memory, because he was such a shining light. That's how we talk about God, says our ancestors. You put the name. In fact, I'd like to dedicate this hour of what's left of this first of my adult education series to Harry Sondheim this year. Why Harry Sondheim? I just did his... um, Memorial, 
a week or so ago. We had it here. We had a whole a lot of people that came. Harry died this year. Why? Because Harry was always here. Every year, no matter how hard it was, no matter how difficult and challenging it was for Harry, and as his body got more and more frail, every time we had an adult education, Harry would be sitting here, our former president, Harry Sondheim. So when you do that, when you dedicate something to a loved one in memory of someone, we have on our memorial wall, I placed a book, a phrase from Proverbs that says, the human soul is the light of God. Every time we wrestle with how to put God's name on someone, on an experience, on a moment, on an activity, we are searching for that sense of blessing. And God, God's self in the Torah says, this is how you bless, how I bless you by you putting my name and raising up my name and all the different versions of my name that you actually just identified in the chat, those of you who wrote that. You know, Psalm 9. The Psalm says, God will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in the time of trouble, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, God, have not forsaken those who seek you. It's the search for God's name. How do we find a name that touches us, that speaks to us. And just as there are 70 names for God, there are probably how many, 7 billion versions, as many people, billions of people, there are searches for a sense of holiness and connection and divinity in the world. So I would say there's probably <clears throat> 7 plus billion names for God. Because all of us human beings is built into the human spirit. That's why this book, Why God Won't Go, to, Go Away, was so powerful, because it's literally about how our brain works and the versions in our brain, the parts in our brain that light up when we seek ascent, when we, when we meditate. That part of our brain that monks, they test monks and people who meditate very deeply and have mystical experiences. When they're in the midst of that mystical transcendent experience, they map the brain and they see what parts light up. And it's those parts that light up in our brain built into the human body that connect us to this sense of transcendence and godliness in the world. My teacher, Harold Schulweis, of also blessed memory, who was for many years the senior rabbi at Valley Beth Shalom in, in the Valley, that's why it was called Valley Beth Shalom, um, and who taught, Harold was uh, a d- disciple, a student of Mordecai Kaplan, uh, officially a conservative rabbi, but clearly a reconstructionist rabbi, who taught both at, in the conservative and the reformed rabbinical schools. Harold Schulweis was famous for uh, writing a book called Predicate Theology, in which he explained one of the Mordecai Kaplan versions of understanding God and God's name by saying, it's identif- talking about God as a predicate, as not a noun. God is, rather than saying God is, has qualities, God is just, God is compassionate, God is merciful, God is caring. In Schulweis's book, he flips the script and says, compassion is godly. Justice is godly. Holiness is godly. Listening, intentional listening to others is godly. Caring about other human beings is godly. And that's where we get all of these different attributes of 
what God is. Look, the prophet Isaiah said, God's understanding can't be grasped. You, there's no way you can actually grasp what God literally is. Instead, we come up with the best we can in our own language that become essentially metaphors for God. So, as as you can see from the list, when you have the list, the first one was Elohim because that was how we first encounter God in the Torah. Eyeh asher eyeh, which I read from that encounter with Moses, literally says, Eyeh asher eyeh means I will be what I will be. I mean, it's translated in many different ways. I am what I am. That was the Popeye version, wasn't it? I am what I am. That's all that I am. I am what I am. The Popeye was quoting the God in the Torah. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, literally means I will be what I will be. What's more profound than that? God says to Moses, I, God says, Moses says, what's your name? And God says, mm, we'll see. It'll be what it is from one generation to the next, from one person to the next, from one experience to the next, from one sacred encounter to the next. That's what I'll be. My name will be as what what bubbles up in you when you experience a sense of the sacred. That's my name. Eyeh means I will be. It's um, Arthur Green, who was a formerly a president of the Reconstruction Rabbinical College, uh, and now is the head of a rabbinical college at Boston University. Has written many wonderful books about theology and other things. A deep. Uh, Hasidic thinker, a beautiful man, uh, he translates yud hey vav hey, this sacred, uh, that we write Adonai, the name that ultimately later in the Torah, God says to Moses, this is my personal private name, yud hey vav hey. Every time it appears in the Torah, we simply say Adonai, which is kind of a generic Hebrew word for God. But Arthur Green translates that God's name is, is, was, will be. God is the is, was, will be of the universe. The is, was, will be. The eternalness of it. The is, was, will be. So, say to the Israelites, I am, I will be. I will be what you discover. Just like Aloha, number four, every word of God, Aloha, is pure. Shield. God becomes shield. See, because God becomes, you have to understand, God becomes whatever we assign that equality to God, that becomes one of God's names. An angel, remember when um, when Moses encounters God in this moment of the burning bush, it's that most powerful uh, in, encountering experience in, I think, in the Torah, because uh, even though God shows up with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those people and Hagar and everyone else, God shows up, but this encounter is this intimacy of God and Moses trying to experience one another. An angel of God, of Adonai, appeared in a blazing fire out of a bush, and that's how the blaze becomes a combination of Adonai, a combination of Eya Sharia, a combination of Eya, to show us, to teach us, there isn't one name of God. And then look at the next ones. I, I, I listed all of the appellations that start with Adonai. Adonai Tzvaot, Adonai Tzid Kenu, Adonai Yireh, Adonai Nisi, Adonai Ro'i, Adonai Rafecha. All of these are ways, names of God in the Talmud, the rabbinic period. 
Adonai Tzvaot is the God of fight, fighting. The God will stand up and fight for you. Then David and all the troops that were with him set out from Balim of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, Ha-Elohim, in, the, in that version God's called Elohim, to which the name Shem, that's one of the names of God, by the way, was attached. The name Adonai Tzvaot, the God of hosts. But Tzvaot really means army. It's the God of armies. Why do we call God the God of armies? Actually, you can't really respond very well, can you? We call God the God of armies because we want God to fight for us. Because the whole book of Numbers is basically, Exodus and Numbers, that 40 years of wandering, we keep bumping up against other people and having to fight. And so we call upon, oh my God, literally like that. God, help us. God, help us. And the God who comes to help us helps the Israelites, the children of Israel, these former ex-slaves, to defeat one army after another. You know, the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the ites that are in the Torah and in the Bible, that we keep defeating, we do because we call upon Adonai Tzvaot. We call upon that name of God which invokes God the fighter for us. When you want someone to stand up for you against the bullies, you want Adonai Tzvaot to be there because the world is filled with bullies. Adonai Tzidkenu, in his days, in the prophet Jeremiah, in his days Judah will be delivered and Israel dwells secure, and this is the name by which God will be called. God is our vindicator, Adonai Tzidkenu, God who is going to bring justice. It's really the justice bringer, Tzedek, Tzidkenu, Adonai Tzidkenu, the justice bringer God. You see how the names of God end up reflecting our most heartfelt dreams and desires for help and support and nurture and someone having our back, something having our back out in the scary world. Here we are. Why is this sanctuary filled with one person? There's one person here. You should turn the camera so they can see you. One person. Why? Because we've been living in a pandemic. Why are you all there and I'm here? Because of this pandemic. Because we've been walking around afraid of people. Right? I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. The one thing everybody learned from the last year and a half is that people make you sick. So everybody stays away from people all the time. Right? And we wear masks all the time. We get vaccines, most of us, all the time. I've had three already all the time. You know, DD and I decided we should divide them up. I got uh, Pfizer and she got Moderna. So in any event, because the world's scary. Sometimes some of us think the world's getting scarier and not less scary, even though <clears throat> factually, statistically, and I'm sure Tom and others who delve into facts, those who are uh, writers, will uh, attest to the fact that less people are dying in the world now other than from this pandemic, from violence than ever. There are less wars going on than ever in history, as far as we can tell. But we feel as a much afraid because we carry our fears with us into the world. And that's why we search for a God who will protect us. Adonai Tzvaot, the God of armies, who, who will turn up and fight the bullies for us. Adonai Tzidkenu, the God who will show up and bring justice. You know, we have a justice project that more and more is freeing people who have been incarcerated unjustly. Because we now have DNA tests and we have all kinds of ways of freeing these people. Isn't it heartbreaking? I hope to you as much as it is to me. Every time I see a story about someone who's been in 
prison for 20 years or 30 years or whatever unjustly because someone just decided they needed a scapegoat and they picked that person. And now they're being freed from various versions of the Innocence Project and the Justice Project. That's the God we want. Adonai Tzid Kenu. We want the God who will actually invoke and bring justice into the world. Adonai Yireh is from Genesis. Abraham named the site. God will see. What site is that? The site when he didn't sacrifice his son. You remember that story, which we also had last week, of God challenging Abraham to go take your son, your only son that he had when he was 100 years old, up to Mount Moriah and be willing to offer him as a sacrifice. Everybody hates that story. What do you mean you want to offer him as a sacrifice? The punchline of the story, of course, always is that he doesn't sacrifice him. It's this fundamental shift away from a world of sacrificing your children. We're still doing it today, all of us. We still have armies filled with little kids. You know, when soldiers die, they're rarely in their 40s. They're kids. They're 19-year-olds and they're 20-year-olds and they're 21-year-olds. That's who we send as our soldiers around the world. You know, we, we have been, humankind has a history of sacrificing children. And in those days, they literally sacrificed children. And you know the stories of other cultures where because God was this mysterious power in the universe and they thought they needed to toss a child into the volcano or whatever, Judaism, from the very beginning, the very first Jews, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, declared no, human sacrifice is out. That's where animal sacrifice came in, because in that story, of course, the angel sent by God says, stop, don't do it. You know, don't touch that child. Instead, there's a ram caught in the thicket, you do that. That's your substitute. That's your substitute. And in fact, there are those who have taught that circumcision itself, which happens in the same Torah portion, where Abraham is commanded to circumcise himself and all the males in his his newborn son in eight days, and all the males in his in his retinue and his extended family, that circumcision is sort of the Jewish version of human sacrifice reduced to the foreskin of the penis. Rather than killing somebody, you offer God this symbol of breed of covenant, which is the organ of reproduction. And basically saying, I dedicate all of my children and the progeny that are going to come to you, God, by that act of circumcision. That that was part of the original uh, spiritual value of what that was all about. And it was in contradiction to other surrounding cultures where literally human sacrifice was still going on. And so Abraham said, God's name here is Adonai Yireh. God saw that this was wrong. God saw this space as a, as a place of transformation from an, human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. The next phrase, Adonai Nisi. God's name is the God of miracles. God, Moses built an altar and named it Adonai Nisi. Adonai, God is a miracle bringer. And what are the miracles? They are the miracle of slaves going free. The fundamental miracle of Jewish life is the story we tell over and over again in every service. We tell this story not just on Passover, which is, you know, the big drama of the story, that we were slaves and we went free. What other people in the world, not very many peoples in the world, 
have as their foundation of their very nature, of their very culture, celebrating their enslavement and then their liberation. That's what we say. We don't say we were born of kings. We were born of, we were born slaves. We grew out of the whole Jewish people. Am Yisrael emerged out of enslavement. We were slaves, and not only that, Am Yisrael, our very nature as a community, as a people, emerged out of a mixed multitude, not a pure genetic inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, and not at all. We celebrate the fact that it was a mixed, an Erevrav, a mixed multitude, according to the book of Exodus, who left Egypt with Moses, and Moses said, anybody who wants to come, come. We're getting out of here. And it was that 600,000 of them who left, according to the Torah, were not just all the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were whoever wanted to go and become part of this people. It was that mixed group that became called first Am Yisrael and B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel and the people of Israel. That's who he came from. That's our very nature. And so when we talk about our relationship with God and we search for names that will adequately reflect our own relationship with God, we, we search for names that will reflect our experience. So Adonai Nisi, the God of miracles, refers to the miracle that slaves literally just walked out of slavery. You know, they weren't picked up by eagle's wings and dropped into Jerusalem. They literally had to walk out from amidst the strongest army on the earth, the most powerful nation on the earth, because of faith. And part of the names of God that we keep identifying which we'll talk about this in, in weeks to come, months to come, for those of you who come back, is the faith that it takes to have these different names of God. It's much easier to have one name, whatever the name is. To have a religion with a name, really clear, whatever that might be. God is God. Judaism says, no, no. God appears in so many different, 70 different versions of God. 70 names because there are at least 70 different ways that we experience God's presence. And then we want to name them all so that we can identify all of these different experiences of our lives as a connection to that which is most holy. Adonai Nisi, the fundamental God of miracles, is the God who took those slaves and transformed them into this divine community called Israel, called the Jewish people. Almost everybody knows the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Traditionally translated. Hebrew, Adonai Ro'i, Lo'achsar. The God of shepherd, the God who is the shepherd. That imagery of the shepherd and we are the sheep is a, was in, for those who lived in that era where they had, Moses was a shepherd after all. How did Moses encounter God at the burning bush? Moses was a shepherd and one of the sheep ran away. He had to go after it and came upon this bush. That's the other power of this story. I love that it's the reason that we designed the ark to be this burning bush because it's such a powerful symbol of revelation. What's so powerful about that story and the names of God is that when you read the story in the book of Exodus, this little uh, sheep runs away, Moses runs after it, right? And sees this bush. There's a bush burning. And in the story, what makes it special is, it says, 
Moses saw the burning bush and that it wasn't being consumed. Now, many, many commentators have said, well, wait a minute. First of all, how long would it take you to watch a bush that's burning before you could possibly figure out it's burning but not being consumed? Burning bush looks like a burning bush. The bush is burning. It was Moses' remarkable vision his spiritual ability to envision and see the sacred in a sneh. That's the name for the bush in Hebrew. It's the name of one of the lowliest bushes there is. It's not a giant cedar. It wasn't, there was a giant cedar aflame. It wasn't like, you know, giant sequoias that we love and that we were so worried about in California burning down and being destroyed that had been there for you know, hundreds of years, it was this little funky bush, this sneh, which is this little crummy bush. It was the source of the, the most powerful ex- human divine encounter in the Torah, this revelation. Because Moses was able to see in a little bush God's presence, a bush aflame. And amazing. That's the power of a human divine encounter, and why we search for names that can reflect transcendent moments such as that. We say, Adonai Ro'i, God is my shepherd. God, Ro'i becomes one of the names of God, God the shepherd, because what does a shepherd do? A shepherd looks after a shepherd's sheep, traditionally his sheep. In the Torah, they're all men that are shepherds, I think, but his sheep protects the sheep. That's the, that's the role of the shepherd. Oh, look at the time. So, you can see why we have 70. I could be doing this for 10 years. But what I want you to do is, because we're only here for an hour tonight, I want you to recognize, by the way, when I mentioned uh, In God We Trust, in South Dakota, Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, Mississippi, I'm sure you can figure out where this is going, They all require that in God we trust appear in every classroom, in every auditorium, and in every cafeteria in the state. So it's God's name has to appear everywhere. I want to, I'm going to end tonight because I'm going to end on time for those of you who care about these things. Um, And uh, we'll come back and do some other things next month. Uh, Something Mother Teresa said that I always loved. Mother Teresa said, I know God will not give me anything that I can't handle. I just wish that God didn't trust me so much. I love that. So, I, uh, I apologize to, uh, <clears throat> to Audrey who couldn't get on for the first half hour. I appreciate everybody who did log on. Um, keep the text if you're going to come back next month because we're going to talk about some other things and I'm going to share some other interesting insights about what Jewish tradition said about names of God. And I want to point out, if you ever, if you have a prayer book, you might open it and glance through, because as you'll see, what the authors of our Reconstructionist prayer book did, every time one of God's names in Hebrew showed up, they gave a different English translation. And there are something like, not 70, but 109 or 10 or 12 different names of God in English in our prayer book that we'll talk about. So thank you all for coming. And um, we recorded this.
Rebecca, of course, recorded it because Rebecca does everything. I just show up and talk. So thank you, Rebecca, and thank you all for being here. And hopefully I'll see some or all of you next month.